We've been spending some time in the book of Ecclesiastes for a few weeks. Um, if you've been with us, you know that. We've been covering quite a bit of text as we go, kind of rolling through pretty quickly. want to do a couple things as we get into the Word this morning. We want to pray. I'm going to do that before uh, we do anything else. But then I'm going to kind of talk through some of the, I don't know, these kind of moments that Solomon's been building us toward as we uh, head to the end of the book. We should wrap it in a couple of weeks here, so kind of taking a little bit of a summary of what we've heard him say so far in this book of wisdom. Also maybe see some patterns that have developed as we've been studying and reading it. I want to say to you again, and Dale said it this morning already once, I encourage you to read scripture. You can read the book of Ecclesiastes in I think an hour and a half maybe or so. I would encourage you also to use all the tools that are available to us these days. If you're not a fast reader, you can listen to it. I do that myself. You can listen to the book and it kind of sets the pace for you. I want to pray as we get into the word this morning that God would give us wisdom. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the chance we've had to be here together to sing praises of who you are, to recognize your sovereignty and your power, your authority, your, your right claim on our lives. Father, we thank you so much for the time that we have together as your people in this life here while we're on earth. Uh, we pray uh, just a prayer of a welcome, of greeting, of encouragement, or of invitation, I guess, Father. Not that you need to be invited because it is your world and we live in it. But Father, we pray that we would be attentive uh, to your invitation to us to see you and to understand the truth that you have for us. May you impart wisdom that only you can impart, Father. We know nothing of ourselves, and I certainly know nothing of myself apart from you. So I pray, Father, that you would give us the wisdom of your Holy Spirit. May you minister to us today, whatever is going on in our lives. May we just turn to you and listen, repent, and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been kind of talking through the book of Ecclesiastes and reading it together. It's been uh, good just to read. I was telling someone last week, I was so encouraged uh, because someone came up and said, you know that thing you said, it was really good. And I go, that's exactly what Solomon said. I just read that. <laughs> so there's lots, if you want to sound wise, you can just read the Bible and, and there's wisdom uh, to be had. Um, we've been talking about Solomon setting out to discover the schemes of life, he'll say today, to discover the meaning, the purpose of all the work done under the sun. And as he rolls through, it's like he, he doesn't know what he's going to find, right? He's kind of uh, achieved a whole bunch of stuff, and he's trying to find out what it means. And he rolls through, and I want to I kind of, um, like I said, walk through some of the these little moments that he puts together and says, well, this is about all you can hope for. I think if we read, um, again, the book, you know, cover to cover, if you will, or beginning to end, you begin to see this pattern developing of him saying bigger and bigger things. Um, you can go ahead and open your book uh, to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want. We're going to work out of Ecclesiastes 7 today. They'll give you a, it's like 640-something, or 464. Um, you can turn there. But we're going to actually start back. I want to read uh, verse 40, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 24. This is the first kind of conclusion Solomon comes to in the book. He says, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. That's his first conclusion, that, that that's the best that you can do. You can just find some satisfaction in the things that you do with the time that you have here on the earth. And then the second one, it's kind of like it in uh, chapter 3, verse 12. He says, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil because this is a gift of God. So he kind of says, you know, do good stuff and enjoy your work. This is the gift of God. This is what he's concluding as he's working through the book. And then at the end of chapter 3, this is, I think, the third time he kind of makes a little summary statement. He says in verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot in life. Because who can bring him to see what will happen after him? You remember he was lamenting a bit about how everything is uh, kind of passing away and he ultimately doesn't control anything. Sounds familiar. And then chapter 5. He says, and it's the subtle one, chapter 5, verse 7. He says, Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. 
Therefore, stand in awe of God or fear God. And as we continue, Solomon is leading us more and more toward the idea of the awesomeness of God, the splendor of God, the, the, the magnitude of all that God has accomplished. Then at the end of chapter 5, verse 18, and this is the last one we'll cover today until we cover it. We'll have two more in today's uh, teaching. But verse 18 of chapter 5, he says this, Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of the life that God has granted him, because this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of heart. Solomon makes a case, it would seem, he says that the sleep of a laborer is sweet. So many times we think, man, to have a life of leisure would be awesome. He's making a bit of argument that if you get to work, if you get to enjoy what you do, and you get to enjoy the results of what you do, you are blessed by God, right? He actually makes a p point there to say that um, you, uh, you don't even spend time considering how your days have gone because you've been so busy working and enjoying your work. But Solomon is a guy who maybe hasn't done, he's done a lot of things, but he hasn't necessarily done a lot of work with his hands. And so he spent a lot of time considering what life is about. I think we can relate more to Solomon in our culture today than perhaps we would admit to. Time to think, time to ponder, time to consider what life is about. As they say, First world problems. <laughs> when you have to carry water every day and hunt for your food, you don't have a lot of time to contemplate the meaning of life necessarily. There's also this narrative throughout the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon kind of builds, and I see it very much, I do, like a, like a wedge. He's building this kind of case about life. He begins as he ends saying meaningless, meaningless, all life is meaningless, but he begins talking about the, the idea of creation right and and how god is in all creation and um he kind of laments a little bit how about how the creative order is all the same that there's, there's cycles in these these patterns that we see he gets into the idea of accomplishment and pleasure or work and leisure right and how he has spent his life and where he sought meaning then remember he talked about relationships and how and that's where this idea of enjoying what we've been given by god is a huge blessing to us but to enjoy also someone, I should say, someone to enjoy it with. The relationship is huge. Today, he gets into this issue of authority. Who has the right to say what to whom or to do what? And then ultimately, I would argue that he's building us toward a final result that we fundamentally stand before God. That if we think that there is no God, that this, this life is all there is, or there's there's nothing but, you know, um, pity or brokenness or sadness. He'll make a case today where he'll say something profound. The end is better than the beginning. That's what he's going to say today. I was reflecting on that this week. Um, last week we talked, Dale shared this morning a little bit about how everyone's becoming aware of the risk, right, of a fear of, of danger we we can empathize we even as a, a culture can hear things and have communal experiences in that and we went from that um last week to uh midweek this week you may have missed it or not i don't know but um billy graham passed away for many people billy graham was an icon i mean he was uh a faithful man of God, to put it simply, <laughs> working uh, behind the scenes, um, sometimes in front of thousands and sometimes with individuals. It's hard to fully conceive of what we may say is the impact of Billy Graham's life. I wanted to bring it up this morning because as Solomon has been considering the futility of all things, I think we would say, well, he lived successfully, right? I just wanted to share something with you. I was amazed as I listened to people talk about Billy Graham's life. Not so much because of all the people who had praised Billy Graham's life, but how many people 
had nothing good to say. I, I, I couldn't understand that, really. <laughs> I, I watched his, uh, you know, talking heads or people found few kind words or, or but it was just they had a re they couldn't hardly help themselves but to find something to criticize about his life so many have said experientially he changed everything for me he preached the gospel faithfully as a matter of fact i listened to some folks who maybe weren't uh uh, the most sympathetic, and, and, and the one kept bringing up issues, and, and the other one kept defending Billy Graham and saying he was actually very, uh, they weren't a fan necessarily, but he was, he was very fair in how he loved people in this day of divisiveness. We would do well, I mean, to, to think about our lives in a greater context and to think, uh, what, are we, what are we proclaiming? I remember one time, I remember one of my favorite quotes attributed to Billy Graham, someone said, Billy, you should run for president. And he said, I don't want a demotion and responsibility. That's a gospel-centered view of the world. That it's not a high enough office to aspire to. So as we consider that, and we consider Billy Graham's, oh, I, this is where I'm going with this. Listen, the end is better than the beginning. For Billy Graham, praise God, his end is better than his beginning. All right, check it out. Join me. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than perfume, and the day of death is better than your day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Because death is the destiny of every person. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools, and this too is meaningless. I don't know how many of us would make that case that the end is better than the beginning, that you're better off to be in a funeral parlor than at a party. I think that's completely counterintuitive to our lives. But he makes the proclamation that it's true, that ultimately our, our goal is what we're living at the end not the beginning why would it be better to be in a house of mourning than a house of laughter right and how does that link to a word of rebuke I was thinking about some of the ways that we worship Jesus and there is a sobriety there is a holiness and there is a, a, a necessary reckoning that's to be had at funerals. Well, I don't particularly happen to go to a lot of funerals, but everyone I've gone to, it's pretty serious business. It gives us a moment to be serious about our lives. And Solomon says it's far better for wisdom that you would be serious about your life than to be having a party. As a matter of fact, the, the last funeral I went to, I can recall the people couldn't wait to get out of there to go party. They couldn't deal with that much reality. Why? Because our life is fleeting. Solomon's been asking questions like, what are you doing with all your days under the sun? Does it have value of some sort? But to stand and to see someone, one of us, who's passed on, bring sober judgment for our lives. It's been said well that many times at a funeral people say, I have to make some changes. I need to live differently. Or maybe for the first time, you recognize that that person who you were there to honor and to thank God for made a huge impact on you, and your call is to have an impact on someone else. Sober judgment comes at these times. He says already there's a time for everything under the sun. And I told you already, this book is written to young people. 
particularly it seems, as he wraps things up. But it's better that we would hear someone correct us than that we would go about listening to our own foolish soundtrack. Something else I've been thinking about. <laughs> we are the star of our own lives. Do you think that that's true? We live our life dancing to our music and believing that we are the center of all attention. Solomon's making a different case. It's better to listen to a wise person's rebuke than listen to the song of fools, right? Like a crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. And that just means it burns up quickly, it's really noisy, it makes a lot of fire, but no heat, and it's over. Under the pot. What are you trying to do in a pot? You're trying to cook something. You're trying to eat, right? Then he says this really interesting proverb, verse 7. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. And I think, okay, why are you dropping that right there? Because in the, moment, in the middle of being led by others or having be under people's authority, they can be wrong. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool. He already said a moment ago that it's better to, to rebuke, to be rebuked, or heed a wise person's words. And a bribe corrupts our heart, what we are called to do. Quite a, oh boy, quite an interesting idea that a bribe corrupts our heart. That somehow receiving payment can change what we care about. The end of the matter is better than the beginning in verse 8. And patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit because anger resides in the lap of fools. I was um, thinking about these two concepts. Patience is better than pride. How many of us, someone said recently, they said, uh, don't pay for patience because God will give you a circumstance that you have to be patient in. He will... It's on-the-job training, patience is. Uh, not an external gift, something you experience and you, we learn together. But patience is better than pride. Why would that be? Because I don't deserve this. That's why. Can you relate to that? I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. You know what that sounds like? Pride. But he says, no, patience. New Testament might say long-suffering is better. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. I f feel like this is very timely, right? Outrage culture. I mean, how many of us can get totally outraged about something? Completely outraged. And how does that end up in a lap of fools? It reminds me of someone screaming, maybe it's me, and end up spilling something all over myself. Because I'm so outraged. This is foolishness, he says. This um, quickening that we have to anger and resentment and hostility. Believing all the while that we're right and righteous. Verse 10, he says this, Don't say, why were the old days better than these? How many of us have done that? If you haven't, you will. <laughs> Back whenever I was young, it wasn't like this. <laughs> it is not wise to ask such questions. Do you think that's true? I feel like a valid question to ask. Culture has changed. The world has changed. Everything is worse than it was before. The argument's being made. I think Solomon has done an excellent job of making the argument that nothing has changed. The life as we know it is life as it's been, is life as it's going to be. Only the window dressings change. The people are the same. And more importantly, God is the same. Why were the old days better than these? They weren't better than these. They were exactly like these. To ask a question like that is to say, again, we deserve better. This is not how it's supposed to be. And we all run back to some forlorn time of our memory that maybe never existed. You know what I've come to realize? Life has always been harder for adults. 
When you're a kid, it's not very hard. When you're an adult, it's kind of always been hard. So, verse 11. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing, and it benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a good thing, and it benefits us who are under the sun who can see it. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. That's the gift of wisdom, right? This is also the reason that people mostly don't do dumb things as we get older. (laughs) Because wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. I don't know if you've ever thought about money as a shelter, right? Money in a lot of ways in our life. But the truth is, and I would make a case, that all of you in this room have more financial wealth and ability than almost any generation. Like common wealth, ability. This past week, uh, we were hanging out in St. Louis and met a gentleman who was homeless. We talked to him for a bit. And in the conversation, it reminded me of an experience I had in my life. I may have shared this with you before, but I took a motorcycle across the country. You know the story, right? But while I was there, I had nowhere to stay. And I told this homeless guy who was homeless, because he told me he was homeless this week, I said, I know what you're talking about. Because I was homeless whenever I was going to California, and I thought about sleeping under a billboard, or I saw it sleep, and I slept in a parking lot of laundromat and i slept um some other crazy place i can't think of right now john and i did this but we slept like we were homeless the reason was by the way in case you're wondering the hotels were full money is a shelter you see as much as i felt homeless i could always go in and put down a piece of plastic or sign my name or give them a bunch of green stuff and they would put me up for the night I wasn't truly homeless, and I confess that. I, I, I didn't really know what it was like to be homeless. But that one place, there was this event happening, and there was no room. They, I, I, my money couldn't buy it. And so I slept in the parking lot of a dry cleaner or of a laundromat. This is the job. Money becomes a shelter in our life. It protects us from things that are at risk. That's what he says. But he says wisdom all the more wisdom like money is a shelter and it preserves the life of its possessor it's a gift from god now he turns consider then what god has done and he asks a question that he asked the very beginning of the book he says who can straighten what god has made crooked God has just set some things as they are. Who can change it? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. God has made everything as it is. This is not a popular belief. Even amongst believers. What went wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Why me? We never for once stop to think in the middle of suffering that it's the same God who is in that moment with us that's in the moment of jubilation or happiness. But Solomon does. When times are good, celebrate it. When times are bad, think about this. It's the same God. It's the same life. It's the same experience. God has made one as well as the other. You cannot know anything about your future. And he, he gets into this issue of, of um, unexpected misfortune. In this meaningless life of mine, don't you love it, by the way, that he says that about himself. He's not externalizing here now. He's internalizing. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. So do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise, because why destroy yourself? And do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool, because why die sooner than you must? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. 
The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Isn't that interesting? Now, I, I get half of Solomon's argument here. I get, I get this first part. He says, don't be overrighteous and don't be overwise. You know, he's like, don't, don't be too big britches, right? Don't, don't be beyond your pay grade. Don't, don't think you're bigger than you are. But then he says, don't be over wicked or over foolish. Like he kind of juxtaposes them and says, don't be either extreme. Because the man who fears God avoids these extremes. Why? Why? The fear of God and humility. That we'd be humble before our maker. Wisdom makes one man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Do you believe that? That wisdom can make one person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Kind of a strange thing to say in the middle of the book. Like, don't pay attention to everything you hear. The, the, someone says, don't believe your own press, right? Or don't... I remember one time I was driving in a car and I heard this little voice. I heard this small voice. And I was like, what is that? Everybody, there was like four people, five people in the car. What? Who? What are you talking about? I said, I don't know. You hear the noise? You hear it? It's like, it's like this little mouse. And I'm like, me, 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 me. Like, what is that? We had inadvertently butt dialed somebody on the way home from a party. And they had heard every word that we said about the party. Now, what's his advice? Don't listen to every word. Have you ever done that? Have you ever got a voicemail from somebody that butt-dialed you and you just listened to the voicemail? What are they? Oh, they take them up. Have you done it yet? Maybe not. You guys don't even use your phones for calling anymore. All right. Isn't it? It's, it's so hard not to. You, what are they saying about me? What are they saying? Ooh, what are they saying about me? Paranoia, right, where we put, like, webcams everywhere. We want to hear what people are saying. We want to see what they're saying about me. He says, don't, don't pay attention to every single word that people say. Or you may hear, why? Because you're just as bad. You do the same thing. All this I tested with wisdom and I said, this is verse 23, I am determined myself to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turn my mind to understand, to investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things. Here's the scheme he's looking for, right? And to understand the, the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. So those are the same things he said at the beginning. I'm looking out to figure out wisdom, wickedness, and folly. Foolishness. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chained. Chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. I want to say, there's a couple places in the book of Ecclesiastes, not read it, where Solomon gets all down on women. Right? Reading that as it is to be read, you would think, yes, he's not very happy with women, which is kind of interesting because he has a harem. <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe he's overdone it. But, there's a, a truth that there's something else because you remember in the book of Proverbs he talks about fleeing the temptress, right? And, and, and it's not necessarily a woman. So I struggle with this because I go, what does that mean? That there's more bitter than death is a woman who's a snare. It's this idea that you get trapped by something that is not. And I think there's a good argument to be made for this because the next thing is he's talking about the scheme of things, right? So you can read that as a literal woman whose hands are literally chains, whose heart's literally a trap. Or you can read that as the things that distract us that we pursue in life that are ultimately meaningless. That become an end unto themselves, that become a mistress in our lives. One time I had a brother of mine say to me, don't let the church be your mistress. Someone told someone else, don't let your job be your mistress. Right? Don't cheat with those things in your life that you have a tendency to think are more important than anything else. 
Look, said the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things while I was still searching, but I was not finding. That's a key point, by the way. He's still looking. He's not finding what he's looking for yet. I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found, that God made mankind upright, but men have gone off pursuing many schemes. That no one is faithful. He says, I found one among a thousand. I think he's being, you know, like exaggerating, right? He's like, I can't find one. A thousand people. You can have a thousand people to find somebody who's righteous. I can't find any. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Well, then who is the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and it changes its hard appearance. Man, I, I just love that verse. He's going to wax poetic here more and more as the book wraps up. But I love that idea that wisdom softens a hardened face. Here we go. Obey the king's command, I say, because you, look, you took an oath before God. Remember before he said, don't be careful when you take oaths. He says, obey the king's command because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence and do not stand up for a bad cause because he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to the king, what are you doing? I think you can look at this in two ways. He's talking about a kingship. He has his own, right? There's a respect. There's this kind of respective authority in this world. But the ultimate king as well. That who can question God? What are you doing? And how many times have we done in our lives? God, what are you doing right now? As if we have the right to question the king. Whoever obeys his commands will come to no harm. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. The proper things to do in the proper ways. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Since no one knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? No man has power over the wind to contain the wind. No one has power over the day of his death. And no one is discharged in the time of war. So wickedness will not release those who practice it. The, the things that we do in this life matter. And again, this is a case, if you've been reading the book, he will make again and again as we get closer to the end. That ultimately, he's not saying our life has no meaning. He's saying in itself, it's meaningless. But ultimately, our life matters. It matters what? How we live it. How we live it. All this I saw, and I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own harm. Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city when they did this or where they did this. And that too is meaningless. This idea that we revere certain people. Oh, look how much holier they are than me or look how much favor they have of God. But he says ultimately they all end up in the same place. What do you think he's talking about? The same place that we're all heading to. We say, heaven. <laughs> right? The kingdom. God. He, he literally means death. He's about to say it. He literally means we're all heading to the same place. I too, by the way, let's just see this in verse 10. I saw the wicked, he says, buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place. To the praise of men. He calls them what? Wicked. I don't know what that means. Religious people, fake religious people. Like, it should be a rebuke here, right? Don't pretend. Don't, don't be a fake religious person. Ultimately, you'll be dead just the same. Verse 11. When the sentence for a crime is not carried out quickly, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong, right? We seek our own justice. In the world. Although a, a wicked man commits a crime, a, a hundred crimes, and still lives a long time, I know it will never, I know it will go better with God fearing men who are reverent before God, right? So he's like, a, a, you might not even get punished or see punishment happen. But it's still better for us if we're reverent and God fearing people. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not be lengthened like a shadow. 
There's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Have you seen that before? They were such a good person. They were so sweet. Why did it happen to them? He says, I've seen the same thing. Nothing's changed. I want to remind you again, this is about 3,000-year-old wisdom written to us. And wicked men who get what righteous deserve. And, and we believe in the moment that that proves something about the experience. It proves something about the failure of the righteous person or the success of the wicked person. What does he say? Verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of your life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life that God has given him under the sun. Do you hear the pattern? Here's another little pile of rocks. You know, he says, this is the, the best thing. Enjoy your life. Celebrate what you have here. Because God is with you in your work as you do it. It's a gift of God. 16. I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe every man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, and then I saw all that God had done. I'm telling you, he's turning here, right? Do you see it? He's turning in the book toward God. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun despite all his efforts to search it out. Man cannot discover its meaning. Even a wise man who claims he knows cannot fully comprehend it. And I have to laugh a little and go, Solomon, does this include you? Because <laughs> he's the wise man, right? He's the teacher who set out to discover the meaning of all things. And he says here at the end of 8, even a wise man who claims he knows cannot fully comprehend what all that God is doing. All that God is doing. Chapter 9. So I reflected on all this and I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are ultimately in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits him. For what? What we do. That's what? All share a common destiny. Now here's the case to be made. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who offer no sacrifices. That's a lot of categories, isn't it? And what does he say we have? A common destiny. A common destiny. As it is with a good man, so it is with a sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is who are afraid to take an oath. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. Remember he started talking about injustice in the world. He was the arbiter of justice, right? And he sees this life and he says, ultimately everything ends the same way. We have a common destiny. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil. And there is madness in their hearts while they live. And then afterward, they join the dead. I just want to take a minute and say, um, <clears throat> we ought not be surprised. We ought not be surprised at the brokenness in life. I mean, we ought not be surprised at uh, the egregious things that happen in the world, right? We ought not be surprised the terrible things that happen in our own lives. I've heard people say, I, I don't know why these things happen. The Bible has an answer. Evil. Evil, right? But then we go, yeah, it's the evil out there. And the Bible says, no, it's the evil in here. Did you read? Did you hear the line? Did you hear what he said? The hearts of men ultimately are full of evil and the madness in their hearts rule while they live. This 
This is why. I'm not saying it makes it any better, right? But it's why we ought not be surprised unless we begin to say out there somewhere over there with those people, we have to examine ourselves and say, wait, there's evil in my heart, in my life. There's a madness that rules me as I pursue all these things before death. But then he says this, because someone, someone says to me, like, man, Solomon's hopeless, right? Like, what a drag, you know, this guy. But look at what he says. But anyone who is among the living has hope. Because even a live dog is better than a dead lion. You know what he's saying? This is, you got time to change. <laughs> you got time to be reverent. You got time to, the Bible would say, repent and believe. You've got time to examine yourself. Because anyone who's among the living still has hope. Because you're not dead yet. Because the living know that they will die, but the dead now know nothing. And they have no further reward. They even, even the memory of them is now forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished from the earth. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. He's like, it's over. Game over. It happened. This is the warning. You're still living, so do something, right? Do something about it. It's not too late for you. And this makes me chuckle every time I read it. Maybe. It's just me. This is the next pile of rocks. Verse 7. So he says that, you know, the dead are done, right? You're still alive. This is is a summary, the last one we get, by the way. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. I don't know why, but that just cracks me up. (laughs) Like, that's just the funniest thing. He's like, so go eat and drink and enjoy yourself and enjoy your wife. All the meaningless days that you've been given. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of the meaningless life that God has given you, your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand sees fit to do, do it with all your strength. Because in the grave where you're going, there is neither strength nor working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Make hay while the sun shines. That's what he's saying. But he's ultimately not fatalistic in a way, right? He's saying we all die, but what does he say? God, who knows what's going to await you, love or hate? He doesn't mean from people. He means from God. Who knows what will await us at the end of our lives? So enjoy it. Enjoy this life. Verse 11, and we'll close with this. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, uh, nor the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth come to the brilliant, or favor come to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. He says, two things happen to everybody, time and chance. I feel like there's a little bit of a balance here, right? Let's talk about it for a second. First, uh, time. There's time. Sometimes we lament our lives. We'll say, oh, it's too late for me. It's too late for me. I've talked to people who are really young, and they go, I've scripted so much. It's too late for me. I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? Um, it's not too late for you. If you're sucking wind, it's not too late for you. Time happens to everyone. Time is still on our side, right? Why? Because we're still here. Like, I'm still here. God isn't done yet. I'm not dead yet. 
I can still respond. Time is on my side right now. You might say time is short. Fair enough. But time happens to everyone. Why would, I, why would I say this? Because he makes some cases about some things that aren't true. He says the race is not to the swift. Why? Because the race is longer than you think. That's why. I remember I was talking to Dale this week about running, and I said, one of the things they say when you run, I don't run, by the way, <laughs> but when you do run, they say, run your own pace. Don't get caught up in it. Don't start chasing people. Run your own pace. And I remember I thought, man, I'm going to run my own pace. And we took off at the starting line, and people were just running past me, and I was so discouraged. And I just kept saying, run your own pace, run your own pace, run your own pace, you know? That's all I could say because I was losing. And it wasn't two hills later I started passing people. Now, you know me. I didn't win. <laughs> I finished. Yeah. Why? Because it's longer than you think. People run themselves out, you know. Go hard and go home. And I'm not telling you to go my pace. You go your pace. Time is on your side. Run your own race. It's not to the swift. It's to the completer. The battle is not to the strong. It's the one that keeps fighting. The fruit doesn't come to the wise. It comes to those who work. That's over and over again in the Bible, by the way. Wealth doesn't come to the brilliant. It's a crockpot. It's time, right? Um, just side note. Uh, everybody's looking for a million-dollar idea. A million-dollar idea. A million-dollar idea. Here, here's a million-dollar idea. Be responsible with what God has already entrusted you with. It's a million-dollar idea. Time is on your side. And then the second thing, which is more concerning, is chance happens to them all. It's the thing that you don't see that gets you. Right? I was... Uh, this is the truth. This is, this is true. I mean, the chance happens to everybody. It's just, just random. Why me? Why not you? I heard somebody say, why, why, why not us? Who better? Who better than me that it would happen to? Why would I wish it on someone else who deserves it? Who deserves it anyway? Nobody deserves it. Well, that one person's really evil. They really deserve it. Yeah, I kind of deserve it. Why not? Chance happens to everybody. We were uh, on that same motorcycle trip, and uh, we had slept out on the street and all that stuff, and we were coming home, and we were going through Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it's a 6,000-mile trip on the motorcycle in 14 days, and we're flying down the highway 85 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, 75, whatever it was supposed to be. We're going down the highway at dusk, and we crash the bike. It's still wrecked, by the way. But we crashed it on the highway at speed, no joke in New Mexico. So the police get there, like, what happened? I'm like, I have no idea what happened. You know what happened? I wore out the back tire, right? Of all the things I was worried about, I was worried about animals, worried about cars, worried about dust, worried about being tired, worried about all these things. It's the thing I couldn't see that got me. And I remember thinking that, Chan, what wasn't Chan? She goes, you know, look at your tire. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. And when it happened, I was not ready for it. I think this is our experience in life so often. It's the stuff that we don't see coming that nails us. The encouragement that I get from Solomon is when it happens, don't go, why? Remember the good old days? Go, yeah, it happens. Verse 12, moreover, no man knows when his hour might come. See that? You don't know when it's your last day here as fish are caught in a cruel net, where birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. It's that thing you don't see that gets you. So what can we do about it, right? Live righteous, you know, that's what he's saying, basically. Be, you know, live in a manner glorifying to God. Fear God. Respect God. Don't, don't whisper about way you, you would do things differently. But ultimately, time and chance happens to us all. The thing is this, right? God knows the problem. He knows the problem. The truth is this, that God from eternity saw the human condition. 
and that God knew the limitation of time. And God knows the hardness of man's heart. And God knows our death and our sin. And because of all those things, he sent Jesus to save us. To set us free that we might be free indeed. Right? The Bible says, uh, at just the right time, God sent his son to die on the cross that we would all be free. Now, maybe you haven't considered it, and maybe you're like, man, I'm good. I got it. Maybe you're enjoying that party or whatever. Time and chance happened to us all. Or a rebuke from the word, you know. Be ready. There's much more to life than what we see. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the truth of your scripture that would uh, cut right to our heart and teach us that um, things we cling so fast to are fleeting, fading away. The things that we've uh, given our lives for, Father, the, the things that ensnare our hearts and trap us um, are unworthy because you are the only thing that's worthy. Would you help us, Father, today to reexamine our lives? Would you help us to be uh, faithful servants um, submitted before you? Would you uh, just empower us? Would you save us? I mean, really, Father, um, some need to just know to be rescued by you from their uh, death trap of a life. Would you reach in with your hand, only you can do, and cause resurrection? We love you so much. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ as the completer of the work that we can never finish. We thank you so much for the opportunity we have to know you and to praise you and to worship you together. And we pray that ultimately while we're on this earth, we would live, we would, we would have those experiences of, of, of enjoying our blessing and um, believing good news and knowing you intimately that when we're finally with you, we might so go like, yeah, we know you. Oh, that you might know us. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your son and our savior, Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that calls us home. Thank you for ends that are better than beginnings. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.